Let's turn together in our Bibles to Matthew 20. Matthew 20. We're going to read from verse 17 to the end of the chapter, verse 34. Verse 17. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he will rise again. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She said unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on your right hand and the one on your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said unto him, We are able. And he said unto them, You shall indeed drink of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called them unto him and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them, but it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And as they departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside, when they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou Son of David. And the multitude rebuked them, because they should hold their peace. But they cried the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou Son of David. And Jesus stood still and called them and said, What will ye that I shall do unto you? They said unto him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Let's pray again. Our Father in heaven, Lord, as we look at this amazing passage, as we think about the words of your Son and contemplate his death this morning and as we take communion. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember, to do this in remembrance of you, not just the taking of communion, but also our reading and to remember your love. Lord, help us to see um, the meaning of these words and not just read them as the words of man or as words on a page, but Lord, by your Spirit, Um, Help us to see, Lord, that these are your very words to us. This is your truth that sets us free, that our our lives depend on these things. Help us to see that this is our life. And Lord, we pray that you would be glorified. And Lord, that we would know you more and more as we think about who you are and how you've revealed yourself to us through your Son. So help us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The passage that we just read records the last events, the last discussion, the last words of Jesus before his entry into Jerusalem, his final entry into Jerusalem, and the final week, and then his crucifixion. These are the last words right before he goes into the fray. And it's fitting that he should say the things that he said that we read in this passage in the light of what's about to happen, right? So you've got to connect the dots a little bit. Put the history together. He didn't say these words two years earlier. He's saying these words as he's walking up to Jerusalem where he's about to be crucified. He makes these words extremely important. 
Now in verse 18 and 19, we have the fourth time that Jesus announces to his disciples his upcoming death. Already we've seen this begin in chapter 16, verse 21. This is the end of Jesus' itinerant ministry. He takes his disciples aside to Caesarea Philippi. He asks them, who do men say that I am? And when they say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he begins at that point to say, what's going to happen to him? What's going to happen to the Messiah? What's it all about being the Messiah? The Son of Man is going to be crucified. He's going to die. He says it again in chapter 17, verse 12. He says it again in 17, 22 to 23. And now again, for the fourth time, he tells his disciples again, the Son of Man, we're going up to Jerusalem at this very moment, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests, unto the scribes. They shall condemn him to death. This fourth time, he gives the most details and the most horrible details. He's going to be crucified. First time he explicitly says that. He's going to be judged and condemned. He's going to be mocked, scourged by the Gentiles. First time he said that. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. Of all the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah, there's many prophecies about the Messiah, and he's fulfill, he fulfills them his whole life, even in his birth. But there's a concentration of prophecies about the Messiah regarding this final week. And regarding his death, Jesus knew just what was going to happen to him. None of it was an accident. None of it was a surprise to him. Now, how many of you have ever foreknown your own suffering? I should see a show of hands. I'm sure there's uh, times in your life where you knew that suffering was coming, right? Um, If you've ever had to go to surgery, before the surgery, you're anticipating suffering, right? You're anticipating, oh, this is not going to be good in a week now. I'm going to go to the doctors and they're going to have to cut my ingrown toenail out or they're going to have to cut my tonsils out or whatever they're going to have to do. It's going to hurt, whatever it is, right? It's going to stink. Or I got to go to the dentist and they got to deal with a, a, you know, a cavity or something and I know it's going to hurt. So if there's physical pain, physical suffering that you can anticipate when you think you're going to go to the doctor and you're not looking forward to it, right? So you can relate a little bit to Jesus and what it would be like to know in just a little while I'm going to get some physical pain, right? Having a baby, yes. There you go. For all the ladies who've had babies, you can relate what it's like waiting for that to happen, knowing, well, it's going to happen, it's going to hurt. But there's also other kinds of pain. Uh, If you're a student... And uh, you know you have to write an essay. Or you know at the end of the year there's going to be a big project that you have to complete and you're not looking forward to it and there's some anticipation of some mental suffering, right? How does it feel when you anticipate suffering? It kind of draws a dark cloud over you, right? Or you, it's like ominous. Like you might be having a good time, but you know in the back of their mind that uh, the pain is coming. <laughs> kind of ruins your day if you think about it, right? Think about this. Jesus' whole life from the very beginning, had this before him. Betrayal, rejection, condemnation, mocking, spitting, scourging, crucifixion. All before him his whole life. He knew it all. So usually we find out, you know, at some point in life we've got to go to the doctor and we go to the doctor and it's over. Maybe a month or so of agony. Nine months of agony for a woman, whatever. But Jesus his whole life anticipating suffering rejection and pain. Surely there was never a man like Jesus. Jesus could rightly be called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Right? Because his whole life he's got the ominous dark cloud always before him. And when he's enjoying his meal, he's still thinking about the fact he's going to be crucified at some point. Right? Going to be crucified at some point. Most of us will never probably be crucified worst kind of pain and death you could ever experience. And yet, in the Old Testament, and we see in the New Testament the fulfillment, in the Old Testament says that though God opens the ear of the Messiah and shows him what's about to happen, it says the Messiah will not turn away from it, but he'll give his, his back to the smiters. He'll give his beard to those who pluck the beard and those who slap and spit. He'll give. Jesus, knowing this the whole time, doesn't bail. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't bail. 
And it's not because he knows, well, I need to go through the surgery for my good, right? Why does he not bail? He doesn't bail because it's for our good that he's going to the cross. Isn't that not amazing? And truly, there's no one like Jesus, and he can rightly be called not just a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but the, man, the greatest man who ever lived because he loved unlike any other man, right? Jesus was a man of sorrows and a man of love. And this is, this is who Jesus is. This is what makes Jesus so wonderful, so rich. He loved you from the very beginning, and he didn't bail for your sake. Isn't that beautiful? And he's going up to Jerusalem now. Everything is so imminent. The atmosphere amongst the disciples must be absolutely electric. It's, it's electric amongst the crowd. They're about to usher him in as the son of David when he rides in on the donkey in just a moment. Everything is so intimate. The anticipation, the excitement. Mark tells us that the disciples were amazed at what was going on. As they're going up to Jerusalem, the disciples are amazed and terrified. So says Mark. Mark tells us that Jesus said this again to them to encourage them with the prophecies. They're amazed. They're saying, this is crazy. Something big's about to happen. I'm afraid. I don't know what's going to happen. It might be bad. It's probably going to be good. But Jesus encourages them and reminds them, the Son of Man must be crucified. Luke tells us they didn't understand. They didn't grasp it. They don't understand what's about to happen. And as you remember their behavior in that last week, you can see they clearly don't understand what's about to happen. They deny him. Peter pulls a sword out to try to stop the whole thing. Right? And when Jesus is risen on the third day, they don't even believe it. The disciples don't understand. They cannot grasp that the Messiah is about to die. The, the disciples are expecting in just a moment, we're talking in a matter of a week, the disciples are walking up to Jerusalem expecting some kind of Armageddon with the pagans. I, this is going to be crazy. I'm amazed and afraid. But somehow in this, Jesus, the anticipation, he's about to overthrow the Romans. He's about to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament and renew the world right now. In fact, Luke tells us that at this very moment, Jesus, Jesus told a parable uh, because people thought the end was about to happen. Jesus is about to die. He's about to be rejected, mocked, scourged, and crucified. Yes, in a sense, he's about to go through a, an Armageddon of a kind. A spiritual Armageddon. The Bible has been pointing to this, and now it's going to happen. Now notice in verse 18, who condemns Jesus in this spiritual Armageddon? Do the pagan Gentiles condemn Jesus? Is it a showdown with the pagan Gentiles, really? Who condemns him? The religious experts of his day. The religious experts. Not, not only the Pharisees, doesn't say that, the chief priests, which includes the Sadducees, and the scribes, the religious experts, the experts in the scriptures. It says, Jesus says, they shall condemn him to death, the Son of Man. Why do they condemn Jesus to death? What crime has he committed? Can you go through the book of Matthew and find any crime that he's worthy of death? As we see, as we will see, the trial itself, they had a hard time condemning him, right? They had a hard time. They had to bring false witnesses in. They didn't even agree with each other. And finally, they got Jesus to say that he was the Son of God. And so they said, aha, we've got him. Tore the robe, condemn him to death, he's dead. But I want to challenge you to think deeper about this. Because many people think that the reason why Jesus was condemned to, to die is because he claimed to be the Son of God. And they can say, well, look, it says that in the Scripture. Is that what you think? Is the whole issue about Jesus and his death just about his divinity? Is that the whole controversy? I want to suggest to you, no. It's not the controversy. The Pharisees, Sadducees, and the scribes hated Jesus long before anyone ever proclaimed that he was the Son of God. 
The Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes hated Jesus because of what he taught concerning the law and concerning righteousness and concerning them. And they hated him for that reason. Now, they couldn't find a reason to condemn him. So they finally condemned him on this saying that he said he was the son of God. But that's not the real issue. That's their smokescreen. That's their excuse for killing him. But the real reason they hated him and wanted him to go away was because of his preaching of the law and his preaching of righteousness. This is why they condemned him. Now, why do the Romans or the Gentiles in verse 19 mock and scourge him? Why did the Romans mock and scourge Jesus? Are the Romans thinking about the law of Moses? Are the Romans thinking about righteousness? Are the Romans thinking about divinity? Maybe they're thinking about his divinity and they think that's a stupid idea. But it tells us the Romans mock him and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. They had heard some stories. They weren't very familiar with all his preaching. But I want to suggest to you there's a difference between the persecution Jesus experienced at the hands of the Jews and the persecution he experienced at the hands of the Gentiles. The Gentiles just thought it was silly and stupid that he claimed to be the son of God or the king of the Jews, this carpenter. And they mocked him because it seemed ridiculous. But the Jews hated Jesus at a deeper level because of the preaching of righteousness. I was reading yesterday in a history book, um, a, a history of the Jews by Paul Johnson. He's a liberal writer. And he said that the reason why Christianity and Judaism doesn't mix and doesn't and, and and couldn't be reconciled to one another was because of the divinity of Christ, their belief in the divinity of Christ. But apart from the belief in the divinity of Christ, he said, really, essentially, Christianity and Judaism are, are the same. That's what he said. It was just this belief of the divinity of Christ that made it irreconcilable and wouldn't work. That's completely false. Completely false. Because, brothers and sisters, Christ was hated long before anyone was saying Jesus was God. And not only Christ was hated, John the Baptist was hated. And not only was John the Baptist was hated, all the former prophets were hated. And they were all hated for the same reason. They were hated because of what they preached about the law and righteousness. And they pointed the finger at the hypocrites, and they pointed the finger at the self-righteous, and they pointed the finger at the religious leaders and said, you guys are unrighteous and worthy of death. And you're not doing a good job leading the people. You're as guilty as everyone else. And that's why they were hated. And that's what Christianity is all about. Christianity is all about the preaching that no one is righteous by keeping the law. The law condemns you. The law shows you you're a sinner. And if anyone ever says they're a good person, they're just a big hypocrite. Jesus himself said, they will hate you because they hated me. They will hate you for what? Righteousness' sake. And if we miss this point, if we think that it's really just about the divinity of Christ and it's not about righteousness, then we're making religion something extremely shallow, right? It's really just whether you believe in Santa Claus or whether you believe in the boogeyman. I mean, it's, it's so shallow. It's just this shallow metaphysical thing. It's not this deep moral issue that's going on that has to do with righteousness in the law. Jesus says, the scribes and the religious experts will condemn me and then the Gentiles will mock me and scourge me for two different reasons. One for righteousness sake, and one that's more shallow. Everything is now coming to a head. And Jesus says, however, the grand finale will be his resurrection on the third day. God will have the last word. Now, in light of this climactic moment, as they're ascending Jerusalem, and it's the imminent outbreak of spiritual Armageddon, suddenly, three impressive figures approach Jesus. James, John, and their mom. <laughs> Keeping in step, you can almost picture the scene, like little boys behind their mother. Mothers are often bold in the interests of their family, right? Now, the mother of James and John has a name. You can put this together by looking at the other Gospels. 
Her name is Salome. She was actually one of the women who accompanied Jesus, taking care of his needs. Remember, there was a group of women who would follow along and care for the disciples as they were preaching. Salome was one of those women. So she knew Jesus, and she believed he was the king. There's some faith in this request, isn't there? Verse 21, Jesus says, what, would you, what do you want? I mean, we're going up to Jerusalem now. Yes? And she says, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. Besides the fact that she believes that Jesus is the king and his kingdom is about to appear, there is absolutely nothing spiritual in this request. It's simply filial. Right? There's no spiritual reason for this. There's no moral reason for this. She believes Jesus is the king and the kingdom is about to come, and that's good. But she's simply acting in the interest of her family. And James and John are even in on it. Brothers and sisters, some people think that family is the most important thing in the world, right? I'm not going to say family is not, not important. But to be totally filial is not right. To ignore the moral and the spiritual and just think, well, this is for the good of my family, so it must be good in God's sight, isn't true. Jesus taught, Jesus never taught that family was the most important thing. In fact, Jesus said, in the interest of the truth, in the interest of what is true, if your family gets in the way, you're to treat your family like gangrene, right? You're to cut your family off. Not because you don't like your family. You love your family. The best thing in the world is for you to um, hate your father and your mother, in a sense, if they're getting in the way of the truth, right? Or your wife or your kids or whatever. Most people don't think like that, do they? Because most people, religion is kind of just this category that's sort of fictional, but really what's important is your family. Not true. But James and John, even them, the disciples were in on it, whom Jesus had been teaching and telling them about his death. A.B. Bruce writes, How soon children forget doleful news and return to their play. Their request was probably based upon chapter 19, verse 28, where Jesus said that in the regenesis, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also shall sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Maybe the, uh, the, the Zebedee family heard that and said, hey, maybe we can get ahead here. They expected the regeneration, the regeneration or the regenesis to happen momentarily. You've got to understand, when they ask this request, they're thinking this is about to happen. How does Jesus answer them in verse 22? He says, it's an ignorant request. You don't even know what you're asking. Why not? I want to suggest to you that when Jesus says you don't know what you're asking, he doesn't He's not saying you don't know what you're asking because in verse 23 he says, that's not for me to give. It's only to be given by the Father to whom it's prepared. That's certainly true. But that's not why he says it. He's not saying, you're, you're, you're asking me ignorantly because I can't give it to you. Verse 22 is the essence of his answer. Why it's an ignorant request. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? That's the answer. That's why it's an ignorant request. Because in their request, they're not thinking about suffering. They want to be great in the kingdom, right? We want to be on your right hand and left. We want to have pre preeminence in your kingdom. But James and John missed everything Jesus had been teaching about greatness. They were not thinking of serving others. They were thinking of getting ahead of others. Serving others is when you want other people to get ahead, right? Prefer others above yourself. Serve others. That's what a servant does. He goes low so others can be lifted up. Why didn't they come and say, Jesus, we have a, a request. Grant that Peter and Judas might sit at your right hand and at your left, right? That might have been more in keeping with service. So they were not thinking of getting others ahead in service and serving, but they were thinking of themselves getting ahead. How many of us also forget what true greatness is all about? 
How many of us also today seek to be great and have preeminence and we completely forget that greatness is about serving others, right? And we just forget about that and we, we want to get ahead in whatever way. We should relate to James and John here, I think. The cup and the baptism that Jesus mentions is most certainly his suffering. But I want to make this point very clear. It's not merely suffering. Jesus did not merely suffer. The cup that he, was, that he took was not mere suffering, mere pain, nor his baptism. It was suffering that was service, right? That was the suffering of Jesus. All service is in some sense suffering. And the cup that Jesus took, the cup of pain, the cup of wrath, the wrath of God that he drank when he went to the cross, and the baptism that he underwent or being emerged in suffering was for our sake. It was an act of service towards men that he suffered. So Jesus is saying, you don't know what you're asking. Greatness doesn't consist in you just getting ahead and me just kind of under the table saying, okay, you can, you can have the preeminence. Greatness is about serving. And serving is about suffering. They answer him, yeah, we're able. Right? Yeah, we're able to suffer. I think in their mind, they were thinking about martyrdom in the next few days. Perhaps like Peter was. In the Last Supper, when Jesus said, I'm going to be betrayed and they're going to take me, he says, we'll die with you. Right? I think this is what they were thinking. They weren't thinking of suffering in terms of service. They were just thinking of suffering in terms of martyrdom. Perhaps the glory of martyrdom. We're going up to Jerusalem. Armageddon's going to happen. Uh, we're probably going to get killed. But it's going to be glorious. In light of that, Jesus says, Yes, you will indeed suffer. You shall indeed, verse 23 Drink my cup and be baptism, be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. You'll remember that James, whom he said this to, was the very first apostle to be martyred. And John the last. John uh, was, of course, the one who suffered the longest. He died in his old age in exile. But I think that James and John, by the time that they died... And when they were martyred, at that point, they weren't seeking glory anymore. At that point, they weren't seeking just to be great anymore. But James and John did indeed die in the service of others. Their suffering wasn't just an act of glory, but it was because they were preachers of the word that they suffered. And I believe that this incident must have had a profound effect upon James and John. And I think because we have John's writings, we're going to find the effect of this incident in his writing somewhere. And I would suggest that we find it in the book of Revelation, the clearest. If you look at the book of Revelation, all ambition is absent, right? All ambition is absent. And what we do find in the book of Revelation is a vision of all the saints ruling with Christ on the throne, right? That's what you find. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, he says, John, your, the, your fellow brother in tribulation for the word of God. Blessed are those who overcome, for they shall sit on the throne. But who's the focus of greatness in the book of Revelation? The lamb. The lamb seems to have eclipsed all ambition. And if we are going to sit on the throne in glory with Christ, it's a matter of grace. It's not a matter of our greatness. James and John learned that such things were not matters of ambition and putting yourself ahead, but of the grace of the Father. Jesus says it will be given to those who the Father has prepared it. At that, we can only say, okay. It's not about getting ahead. It's not about beating your brothers and sisters to the top. It's all about service and the grace of the Father. Look at verse 24. How did the other disciples respond to James and John? You can pretty much picture the, the incident, right? And you can see that the other disciples, when they heard about this, probably are pretty agitated. It says they were filled with indignation. And probably the conversation they had amongst themselves was very self-righteous, right? 
Think of those guys thinking they can get ahead. They're no good. You know, what are they thinking? That they can snub us? That they can get ahead of us? Push us behind? This only made them mad because all of them were proud and ambitious. If you get mad at another person's pride, it's because you are proud. Right? C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity in his chapter, The Great Sin, talks about this. It's a classic discussion of this problem. Lewis says this about pride. The more we have it, the more we dislike it in others. In fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? That's how you know how much pride you have. Because if you didn't have pride, you wouldn't be full of indignation if someone snubs you. The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride, Lewis says. It is because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I am so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Two of a trade can never agree, is what Lewis says. It's because the apostles want to be at the top that they get mad that James and John did exactly what they were thinking about doing. And then in their self-righteous hypocrisy, they might have said, oh, they're so sinful for doing that. So we see how spiritual the twelve are so close to the end. <laughs> right? <laughs> how they have learned from the Master. It, I mean, it's probable that the disciples threw some sins off. Maybe they don't cuss like they used to as fishermen. But pride was alive and well. Bishop Hall writes, Pride is the inmost coat which we put off last and which we put on first. I think this is encouraging, though, brothers and sisters, encouraging to those who start badly. You know, you see the apostles at the very end of Jesus' time on earth, and they're just a mess, right? And it's encouraging what happened to them once they understood the gospel and how they became men who were full of the Holy Spirit, full of humility and service towards others. And it should be encouraging to us who start badly, that we can also finish wonderfully. And you don't need to be discouraged if at this time you're a big jerk, right? Or if you've had a bad start. That God, through the gospel, can change you. And he can make you a loving person, even if you're not right now. That should be encouraging to us. Now let's look at verse 25, because what's the answer to this problem? Jesus, it says in verse 25, called them to himself. Jesus called them to himself. He sees the problem. He sees the indignation. He sees the pathetic request. He sees how out of place it is at, at this time. And Jesus calls them to himself because it is from Jesus alone that we learn the true way of life. Jesus calls them to himself and begins to teach them. And Jesus contrasts between how the Gentile world, and when we talk about the Gentiles in Scripture, we, we mean those who don't know God. Jesus contrasts between how the Gentile world operates and how God's people who know him ought to be different. God's people, because we know God, and I'll remind you, as Christians in this world, we are the only ones who know God. There is no one who is not a Christian who knows God, right? You cannot know the Father except through the Son. And if you have the Son, you know the Father. And for that reason, for the reason that you know God, if you're a Christian here today, that's why you can be light and salt in this world. That's why Jesus says, let your light shine before man. He's not saying, be the best person you can be so that people will see your good deeds and think you're so righteous. Let your light shine. Let the knowledge of God shine through you. In the difference, the way that you live, the way that you think, in contrast with the Gentile world that doesn't know God. Jesus has already, in Matthew, at various times, talked about how the Gentile world lives. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 32. Jesus tells us that the Gentiles seek after material things. That's what's in their in front of their eyes. That's what they're seeking. That's what they're pursuing. That's their goal. Material things. Why? Because 
The things of God, are, they don't know them, or they're fictional. Maybe they say they believe them, but it's a category of unreality to them. What is real to a Gentile is just what's before their eyes. The material world, that's their concern. Eating, sleeping, living in a nice house, having some pleasure, just like an animal lives with only the material things before their eyes. Jesus says in chapter 6, verse 7, Gentiles who don't know God pray a particular way, right? How do Gentiles who don't know God pray? He says with vain repetition. They use formulas. They use lots of words. They do this because they don't know God. They're trying to get God's attention. They're trying to twist God's arm. That's how, that's how Gentiles pray. They pray in such a way that betrays the, the thinking that they think God is stingy, that they think God's not going to answer their prayer, and so they're going to have to annoy him to get anything from him. Or use a magic formula to get something from him because God isn't relational. He's just a slot machine. You've got to put the quarter in, twist it just right, and then he'll come out, right? And now here, Jesus tells us a third thing that the Gentiles do who don't know God. The Gentiles, he says, lord it over their own. They exercise dominion. And those in the Gentile world who they see as great are the ones who are served. In the Gentile world, the great guys don't serve. The great guys are served. That's how the world that doesn't know God operates. And God's people are to be different. Just take the, the opposite of those things that, we, that Jesus has talked about. God's people are to seek, are to be concerned about, are to make their priority things above. Not material things. Do you need to eat? Yes. Do you need to sleep in a house? Yes. Do you need clothes? Yes. That is not your priority. That is not your ultimate concern. That is not what you're about as a person. You're not living like an animal who doesn't know God. Your concern, your goal, your pursuit... Your life is about the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else will take care of itself. Those who know God, their prayer lives ought to display a trusting relationship with God because they know him. If you know God through Jesus Christ, you know that God loves you, as we talked about. You know that God likes you. You know that God cares about you. You know that God turns his ear towards you. You don't need to do magic formulas. You don't need to twist God's arm or annoy God to get something from him. If God says no, it's because he loves you. Right? That's a hard thing to accept, isn't it? How many of you have ever asked something from God and you said no? Are you ever tempted to think he wasn't listening? I need to pray more. I need to do more magic formulas. If I only had taken communion earlier. What, I mean... That's not displaying the knowledge of God through Jesus. God says no sometimes because he, he loves you. And when God says yes, don't think, oh, it was because I took communion earlier. Yes, it was because I did good that day. I said just the right thing. I prayed just long enough. Or it's like, wow, God just cares about me. God really likes me. This is what we learn through Jesus. And thirdly, God's people who know God and know what God values and what God is like should realize that those who are great are those who serve. Right? Our mindset must change. So instead of thinking, I'm great, I should be served, we should think, I want to serve. Those who are great serve. James Denny writes, True greatness, he tells them, does not mean dominance, but service. J.C. Ryle says, The standard of the world and the standard of the Lord Jesus are widely different. They are more than different. They are flatly contradictory. The ways of the, of the, of the Gentile world and the ways of God's people contradict each other. The 12, these 12 Jewish disciples were acting like Gentiles, not knowing God by their behavior. Now, brothers and sisters, turn your eyes with me to verse 28. 
And here we come upon one of the most important sayings of Jesus Christ. One of the most important verses in all the Gospels. Because this is a statement of Jesus concerning his life mission and the purpose of his death. And it's from Jesus' own mouth that he says it. Jesus is now going to tell us why he's come and what his death means. This is extremely rare and valuable because Jesus often didn't talk about it explicitly like this. Now, if you connect verse 28 here with verse 18, you'll notice that both of these verses include the phrase, the Son of Man. Jesus in verse 18 said, The Son of Man shall be betrayed, condemned, mocked, scourged, crucified. That's what's going to happen to the Son of Man. But obviously when the disciples heard this, they didn't understand the meaning of these things. What does that mean? The interesting thing is a person can believe in the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and not understand what it means at all. And I would suggest if you don't understand the death of Jesus and his resurrection, you are not a Christian. You can believe in it and not understand it. You're not a Christian. You're not a Christian unless you understand what his death is and you're trusting in what it means. And a lot of people in this world believe Jesus died and rose from the dead. A lot of people in this world believe that Jesus fulfills messianic prophecy. They're not Christians. What does he say in verse 28 about the Son of Man's death and the Son of Man's coming? Explicitly, the main mission of Jesus in coming to the world was to serve. Jesus came from heaven to earth to meet our needs. And that's why Jesus is great, isn't it? How many of you believe Jesus is great? We sing about him, we pray about him, we talk about him, and he's great. And is it not true that his greatness consists in the fact that he loves us and that he came to meet our needs and to save us? Isn't that what makes Jesus great? And that Jesus' teaching about the truly great ones are those who serve really isn't arbitrary at all. That's just not an arbitrary statement that we have to sort of accept because Jesus said it, right? There's nothing arbitrary in it. We actually get it. Jesus is worshipped worldwide. Jesus is great in our midst. Jesus is great on our tongues. Why? Because he served us. Service is true greatness. We love Jesus and think he's awesome because he loved us and saved us, right? There's nothing arbitrary about this. What was our greatest need? If Jesus had come and helped us in every single way, short of saving us from our sins. He would have not helped us at all. Heal a blind man, feed the 5,000, teach us about the law, goodbye, go back up into heaven. He did not help us at all. It's not that everything Jesus did wasn't service, but that the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, was the extent to which his service went, to our utmost need. His love is shown in that he came to serve us in our true and utmost and severe need, even at the cost of his own death. And it's only when we see that Jesus ultimately came into the world to save us from our sins that we really begin to understand Jesus at all. If you think he's just a good teacher or a good healer, you don't know him. You don't understand the true meaning of his name. What we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, God saves, or the salvation of God, because why? Because he'll walk on water. He'll rescue Peter from drowning. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's your greatest need. Your greatest need today, my friends, is to be saved from your sins. And if you don't believe that, then you're basically saying, I don't need Jesus. Jesus isn't important. Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. God doesn't know what he's talking about. Let me instruct God on how it is. And how does he save us from our sins? 
How does Jesus serve us and meet our utmost need? He tells us explicitly in verse 28 that he came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus' life was given as a ransom, an explicit statement by Jesus about the meaning of his death. Jesus basically says, my death on the cross is a ransom for others. That's what it means, friends. That's what it means. And any interpretation less than this falls short of what the cross is all about. When you think of Jesus' death on the cross, you must see it as a ransom for many. And that ransom is a service for many. The Greek word for ransom is lutron. It means ransom. There's no uh, difficulty in the Greek word there. But what is a ransom? The dictionaries will tell us that a ransom is that which is paid for the redemption of a prisoner. It's essentially what a ransom is. Someone is a prisoner or a captive, and you pay the captor whatever they demand, and when they get that ransom, the prisoner is released. Usually in a ransom, there are three parties involved. The f- there's, there's, there's one party, the first party we'll call it, who pays a second party to release a third party. Very simple. One party pays a second party to release a third party. And a ransom is typically not needed if there's some other way of releasing the prisoner. If you can just negotiate with the captor, then you don't need to pay anything. You can just negotiate and you'll come out. Or you could organize an escape, right? Just bring in the army, kill the captor, and you don't need to pay anything. But if there's no other way, and the danger is real, then you need a ransom. And this is what Jesus says. He came to be a ransom. Think about this. If there was some other way, Jesus wouldn't have died on the cross. The Bible tells us that repeatedly. Galatians 2, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There is no other way. The Son of Man came to die on the cross as a ransom. That's the only way you can be served. Your problem could not be fixed any other way. Think about that. And who are the three parties involved in this ransom that Jesus speaks about? And here's the amazing mystery that we read in the Bible. And obviously we can't go into it in depth, but we'll just touch the surface. God, I submit to you, is the first party who pays the ransom. And who is the ransom? God in Christ. To the second party. And who's the second party? God is the second party. God in his law and in his justice to release the third party, who's us, God's creation. What an amazing mystery we see here in the death of Christ. What's brought before us as we sang today, and here is love, thus says the ocean, is God's justice and God's law. And you and I, because of our sins, and our sins is that those things that we do that are contrary to the law of God, that God has declared on on the page or that he's written in our hearts. All of us know what we ought to do and what we ought not do. And we all do things that we we know we ought not do. That is is essential human experience. doesn't matter where you fly in this world. You'll go somewhere, you'll meet people who are guilty because they do not live the way that they know they should live. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all broken God's law. And because we've broken God's law, all of us are under the sentence of death. All of us are prisoners of justice, prisoners of the law, and it demands, it is demanding our execution. The wages of sin is death. Now think about this for yourself, and you can't get out any other way. There is no negotiations, there is no escape. You deserve death, and if if that was all that could be said, then you are a dead man. You sinned, you're dead. The end. And it would be the end if that were, if there was no gospel, if there was no Christ. That'd be the end. You've sinned, you'd already be in hell. The reason we're not in hell is because of this good news, because of Christ. We were hopelessly lost 
You must understand that to understand the ransom. Hopelessly lost. And the only reason, friends, that you and I have hope, the only reason why we're safe from our sins, the only reason why we have life and not death, the only reason why we're redeemed is because of Christ dying for us as a ransom. That's the only reason you can have a smile on your face today. That's it. If this history isn't true, you've got no hope. If Jesus didn't die for you, where would you be? But because he died for you, if you're believing in him, where will you be? Where are you now? Are you redeemed? Yes. God in his great love has redeemed us through Jesus Christ being a ransom for us. God accepted the ransom that he provided through Christ dying for our sins and paying the penalty that we deserve. As it says in the book of 1 Peter, Christ died the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. And this, as we learn here in verse 28, is service. As we learn in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it's service. God himself came out of heaven in humility and died on the cross for our sins to raise us up, to bless us, to fill us with joy, to give us peace, hope, and eternal life. This is why the prophet Isaiah calls him the suffering servant, because in his service towards us in love and humility, he suffered and he served us. And this is why he's great. This is why Jesus has the name that's above every other name. This is why there's no other name in the entire world that you'll ever find of someone who's as great as Jesus. Because no one ever served you like Jesus did. No one ever loved you like Jesus has loved you. There is no other name like his. It is exalted because he is great because he did serve us. This is what the gospel is. This is the meaning of the death of Christ. And if you don't believe in this, if you don't understand this and trust in the death of Christ or trust in the ransom for you, you can believe in Jesus all day and you're not a Christian and you're not saved. In closing this morning, I want you to compare yourself to the blind men in verse 29 to 34. Compare yourself to the blind men. The blind men had a need. Just like you and I have a need. The blind men heard with their ears that Jesus was a healer and that he was walking by. The blind men believed. Let me ask you. First of all, do you believe that you have a need? It's far worse than physical blindness. Do you believe that you have a need of salvation? Do you believe that you have a need of being saved from your sins, which will bring upon you eternal death? When you hear about Jesus, when you hear the gospel, there is, there is one who can save you. God has come into the world in Christ. God has died for your sins. You can be saved from him. Do you believe it? How do you respond when you hear the gospel? Do you close your ears? Do you ignore it? Do you say, I don't believe? Are you skeptical? If those blind men had been skeptical, skeptical, they would not have been healed of their blindness that day or ever. That was their one chance, wasn't it? Jesus would have died and risen from the dead and gone into heaven. They wouldn't have been healed. And in a sense, you just like them have only one chance. Imagine yourself like a blind beggar on the side of a road. Jesus is passing by right now. You've got one life to live. You've got one opportunity to believe in Christ. What do you think? He's just going to be available forever? At your convenience? This is your day to be saved. How do you respond when you hear the gospel? Do you believe it? What did they do? They came to him. But the world rebuked them. Why did the world rebuke them? Verse 31, the multitude rebuked them because why? They should hold their peace. That's not conventional. 
You should shut up. This isn't appropriate. It's out of place for you to do this and to yell and hoop and holler and to come to Jesus. And the religious world today will rebuke you for thinking that you can be saved by Jesus Christ by grace through believing in him through his death as a ransom, the religious world will rebuke you and say, that's out of place. That's not appropriate. That's not how it works. That's not how it should be. If you want to be a Christian, if you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ, be prepared to be rebuked by people who have phony reverence, right? Phony reverence towards God. What do you do when you're rebuked? Do you withdraw? Do you chicken out? Do you go with the flow? Or do you persist like these blind men? I don't care what the world has to say. I only care what God has to say. And I believe what I've heard. And now look at what Jesus does. And this truly is amazing. This truly gives us an amazing insight into the heart of Jesus. Because what it shows us is that Jesus was ready to save them. Jesus had compassion on them. Look what it says he does in verse uh, 23. What does he do in verse 23? He stops. Where's Jesus going? What have we been talking about in this sermon? Jesus is going up to Jerusalem for Armageddon. Right? This is the climax of the ages, brothers and sisters. There's a flock around Jesus following him. He's about to get on a donkey, ride in as the king of the Jews and be crucified for the sins of the world. Don't you think that Jesus' mind might be a little absorbed at that moment? Honestly, don't you think that he might be a little absorbed at that moment? And Jesus, at that moment, stops for them. He stops everything. He stops the program. (laughs) All the prophecies are being fulfilled, and he stops for who? These two people. He wasn't so absorbed that he couldn't stop. And the amazing thing here also is that he actually had compassion on them. Because one might say, well, maybe he'd stop and heal them quickly just so we can get on. But he actually pitied these people. He was actually thinking about them at that moment and loving them and caring for them in the midst of this amazing moment, right? He's not just like, okay, here, take some change. I've got other things on my mind. He actually has pity and compassion for them. What a savior he is. And such is Jesus today. Just like this is he today. Jesus is not too busy to look at you, to stop for you, to have mercy and pity in his heart for you. Jesus is the same today as he was yesterday and he'll be forever. Do you believe this is what Jesus is like? Or do you ever feel like he'll save you, he'll, if you ask for salvation towards him, he'll throw you some money, but he's really just too busy in heaven. I mean, there's probably a lot of business going on up there. and He's probably kind of absorbed. But he's not, he's so busy, he can't stop and have mercy or compassion on you. He'll he'll save you because that's what he said. Let me suggest that's completely false. That the Son of God today, who shows us what God is like, is at this moment not too absorbed for you. And he loves you. And he proved that because he died for you. His thoughts are towards you. And all you need to do is simply let Jesus serve you. Just say yes to what he did on the cross for you. Just rest in it. Trust in him. Look to him. And you will know his greatness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, the mystery of the ages is how you saved us from yourself through the sacrifice of your amazing beloved Son. Fill us with wonder this morning. Fill us with comfort as we think about how you love us and how you've forgiven us. May your May your dear people, Lord, this morning realize that you like them, realize that you care for them, realize that your thoughts are towards them, realize that their righteousness is not a fiction or just a technicality. Help us to have a bigger vision of your heart and to see your amazing love and compassion. And Lord, for those who don't know you, may you show them 
their sins and their great need. Help them to see their greatest need is not what they're going to eat tonight. Help them to see that this is a moral world and that religion is a deep moral thing. And Lord, please draw many people to yourself. Thank you that your cross declares who you are in all of your justice and all of your love. Thank you for loving us so much. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.